1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Very quick bit of admin from me today before I hand over to Robin. And that is to say that our second Fireside Conversations special has gone out this week, exclusive to Patreon supporters. Robin is joined by Professor Chris Lintot around the campfire in Northampton for a 70 minute filmed special. They chat about the nature of reality and life on other planets and the night sky and then uh at one point during the conversation outside under the night sky uh we got to enjoy the iss passing over so that is out now exclusive for patreon supporters patreon.com bookshambles is where you can go to sign up and get that as well as extended episodes bookshambles and a whole lot of other goodies and with that being said now here's robin
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's book shambles, though uh, Josie's not, not here again, uh, I was talking to her yesterday, she hopes to be back very, very soon, but she uh, is still on uh, maternity leave and juggling many, many things. Uh, just a reminder, if you can, support us via Patreon, that is fantastic, and uh, also, now when will this be going out, and maybe maybe we'll have already done our Christmas replacement shows that are now at Easter uh, at King's Place by the time this has gone out, so if that has happened, why won't you then? there and if it hasn't Why not come? There we go. That's that dealt with. Um, Today, we're going to be talking uh, with Hayley Campbell about her book, which has just come out uh, on the day we're recording. Actually, it came out uh, 24 hours ago. But by the time you listen to it, it might have been more hours than that. Uh, All the living and the dead, a personal investigation into the death trade. And uh, this is something, I mean, I'm always fascinated uh, talking to people uh, about these ideas. And uh, as a very, very morbid child who has carried that morbidity uh, into adulthood, this book is uh, filled with just very uh, enlightening, illuminating, sometimes disturbing stories um, about our relationship with the dead and various people who have a closer relationship, <coughs> excuse me, a closer relationship with the dead than, than uh, most of us probably. Hello Haley.
2: Hello, thank you for having me on.
0: So this is right, um, first of all, when did you, were you a morbid child?
2: <laughs> very, very. I I was trying to justify this book because when you say you're writing a book about death, people mostly just go, why? Why would you do that? Um, and I, I find death absolutely fascinating and always have done. And um, I think it's the fact that no one ever tells you what's going on. Like I remember being in school, we had whole classes devoted to sex ed which is supposedly one of the great taboos sex and death Uh, but as far as death was concerned we had religion and I was in a Catholic school and you know Jesus dies and then comes back to life and then and if you die you go to heaven and that was basically all they said and I was like but what happens to the bodies and no one would ever well you get buried and then the worms eat you and I wanted to know the stages of what happened and I wanted to see but no one would ever tell you. Um, But at home I had my dad who's the comic book artist Eddie Campbell was doing From Hell at the time and I think he got that job when I was about two or three. So that book has been part of my life the entire time I've been conscious of being alive and he he had reference photos all around of the, the the crime scenes and the autopsy pictures and and I I found it fascinating not scary but I I wanted to know more about them and I I found it strange that other people's dads didn't do this kind of thing other people's dads were accountants or or lawyers and my dad had these things pinned up around his room and um so I was I was conscious very early on of things being different in my house to other people's houses. Um so in that way I was a morbid child. And I if if there was a dead bird, I would want to go and see it. I wouldn't poke it with a stick, but I would want to see it. And I've always loved um, you know, pathology museums where things are in jars. And like the Hunterian in London, it feels like a list of things a witch might keep. You know, she'll have feet and hands but there also be a lion's toe or a two-headed lizard so it's just this this corner of the world that a lot of people would never look at and I I love
0: that is because because I think when I was growing up I would I could see my dad for instance gutting rabbits Mm -hmm. and if you have that proximity to actually like I, I remember the shock of first seeing what a heart looked like because of course you are you know when you're growing up you see that nice heart that appears on greetings cards etc <laughs> and then suddenly seeing that it was not like, you know it w- it was much rounder it was it, it didn't have you know just things like that uh i th- i think you i mean it, it's an interesting the fact that we hide away death in particular i think in uh in english la- well, we're not even in all english language cultures but uh certainly in in the the uk people i've spoken to who kind of study death say yes this bit where it's just basically the body is taken away it's placed in a box you are then in a church or wherever else you might be you don't even know if that person's body is in in a box there is uh i mean for for you what was do you because you you talk about i can't remember who it is in the book who says you know that they feel it's very important that the first time you see uh the body of someone who's died um it should not be someone that you love and I wondered about what was your first experience of uh, of, of seeing a, a dead body
2: well i I had a friend die when I was 13. she drowned because I grew up in Australia uh, which in, in a part of Australia which is currently flooded and people are currently dying. and so it was one of those big floods and her uh, her Labrador bell had fallen into a flooded creek and been washed away and my friend Harriet, we were 13 at the time. I wasn't with her but she jumped into the creek to save her dog and then somehow got trapped under the water her hair became trapped and she drowned and um i wasn't there so i was told about it and i went to her funeral and all of the teachers were there and um and her parents were there and I was sitting in the front row and I remember there was a white coffin in the middle of the room and it was my first first funeral and it was my friend but I hadn't seen her I had all of my grandparents at this time so I hadn't even been to an old person's funeral and I couldn't get my head around the fact that she wasn't alive she wasn't there with us at the day because you know but I couldn't see her so I couldn't really get it into my head that she was there because in Australia like like most places in the UK there's no open coffin Um, you know you can go and see people in the chapel of rest but it's not like America where you're you're put on display at the front of the room really so it was a closed coffin and I don't remember anything that anyone said um, in the eulogies because I was just fixated on this coffin and I think it was at that point I realized that other people had put her in there and because she doesn't doesn't go straight from dying in the creek to being in the coffin and so i wanted to know what happened in the in-between point um i've always been interested in what happens where we can't see it like some of my favorite interviews i've done have been with uh curators in museums and i've said what's in the back room that you can't put out on show and there's always something there's always something and it'll be their personal obsession and they will suddenly come alive when they tell you about it so I kind of became interested in funeral directors and and what happened to the body before it was put in the coffin and then what happened when the coffin was taken out of the church and you were given sandwiches in the church hall as a wake like where does it go who who looks after it but I hadn't seen a dead body and then I had other other friends die as a teenager, you know, cancer and suicide. And then all of my grandparents died and I had other friends die and at no point did I ever see a dead body and I kept thinking this is weird. This is so weird. Um because I like to see things to believe them, which is kind of a good trait in a journalist but annoying in a friend, I think. <laughs> you want to see things. Um and and so it just kept, I kept fixating on it and uh, using my role as a journalist to go and interview people until one time I said, I just have to do this book. I have to make something of this because there is something here that we're not seeing. And the thing I found in interviewing lots of people who work in death is that not, even they don't see the whole of death. Like there are various points where they will not like it's too much for them i um you know the, the there's the man who works in the crematorium mm-hmm. and uh and the idea of dressing a dead man for his funeral creeped him out because he said it was too personal and the the women who like literally weigh human hearts in the autopsy room won't read the suicide note in the coroner's report. There's something, there's always something that's a bit too much. So I I wanted to talk to all of these people and see what they see to try and get a whole picture. And my first actual experience of seeing a dead body was just at a funeral home um, in South London. I was interviewing Poppy, who uh, was in her mid thirties at the time. And um, I said, I'd I'd really like to see a dead body. And she said, well, I'm not this isn't a museum and I'm not just letting, I'm not just going to open the fridge and let you see, you need to have a real experience of seeing a dead body. And and she's the one who said, the first dead body you see should not be someone you love. Mm. And I think it's such a a huge statement. And I think about it all the time, especially now with COVID and Ukraine, you know, people, people haven't had the chance I had, which was to go and dress a dead stranger and to be in the room with there were 13 dead bodies that day and you know it's I was so nervous and um I was shaking but within seconds because I thought I was just going to stand in the corner of the room and watch them dress this dead person, but they they got me involved as if I was training for the job. They said, can you come hold his hands so we can remove his shirt? And as soon as I held this this dead man's hands, which were cold and um, not stiff from rigor mortis, but stiff like something has been in the, the fridge for a while, which he had. He'd been in the fridge for two weeks. And so I came over and I held his hands and I, I, w- I was instantly unafraid because this was just a guy and it became more of a sad uh solemn thing even though i don't know him there's there's such power in being around dead bodies whoever they are and doing this nice thing um for this man i don't know you know helping It's it's like it's like getting someone dressed for something you know I, i've said before it's like um doing up the the shoelaces on a kid's shoes before you send them into school you're helping them as far as you can before they go on to their the, the place where you can't follow them so it felt very special to be there and i'm eternally grateful to poppy for giving me the chance to be around dead bodies see that they are not frightening they are not as frightening as we are led to believe by people telling us oh you shouldn't see them you shouldn't be around them they're just people and so now if i do see another dead body and it's someone i love i'll be able to focus on the fact that i'm grieving rather than going oh my god it's a dead body i think that's i think
0: that's huge it's uh um it's interesting i think you're the first person that i've ever interviewed who uh has written an entire book just as an alibi, so they could eventually see a dead body. Which is a very <laughs> impressive thing to uh, have done, and then build up such an interesting book around it as well. It's because um, I find that when you talk about the dressing, it immediately reminded me of a friend of mine whose whose daughter uh, died of cancer, and and she said that when after she died, she was getting her the T-shirt that she knew her daughter wanted to be buried in, and mm-hmm. kind of th- that she was laughing because it was so difficult if typically her daughter had chosen a t-shirt that was really hard to get on <laughs> it's know, really and...
2: hard to dress a dead person yeah I are not and, helping and i just
0: remember thinking you know, again also that importance in that moment which is that she was dealing with what for most of us i think would say is the most the most terrible thing that we imagine which is is, is you know to, to to lose lose your child um and uh and then also for some you know that humor in going you know trust her to Chosen this T-shirt, and we just can't <laughs> can't get it on, and uh, yeah, I remember because I think they, I think I've only seen I might have seen I might have seen two bodies, but I'm not sure if one of them was dead. That's the uh, the I, I think there was a um, I've uh, I, there was there was a um, I, th- I think he was a, a homeless guy in Edinburgh, and he was just suddenly surrounded by people, and I I just remember seeing the flesh of his leg. It was a freezing cold day as I was walking along and thinking that is so wrong the wrong I mean, color and, and then the only other one is 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 when my mum died which I, I missed the actual moment that uh she went from from uh being alive uh i was just out of the room but that was uh yeah it's really interesting isn't it because you because we're kept away from it we just imagine so many things as you said as well like touching the skin mm-hmm. as as you it, you know the, the it cools quite rapidly really it um does. And then there was that lovely—I um, can't remember if it was Nick Reynolds who I think it was Nick Reynolds who who, who mentioned it—who um, in your chapter about the the making of death masks uh, that there's a period of time where it seems like as someone dies, all of their lines, the, the wrinkles, that everything <laughs> seems to smooth out. That if you get it at just the right time. And I remember both my sister and I just, just going, God, mum has got, she had, I mean, she had very few wrinkles anyway, but it was still that kind of thing that going, you know, looking at those kind of things and you end up looking, well, you, you look so closely at someone that even though you've seen them your whole life, you've never looked with that level of detail. Mm -hmm. Well, you probably did when you were a little child, you know, when you're a baby and when you're a toddler looking at your mother's face, you probably look at it in that same way and that it's probably the first time you know that we'd looked at it with 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 that that close eye for details since then yeah
2: yeah and that's that's another thing like with with embalmers who sort of who inject the body with preservative and sort of puff everything up so because when when you die everything sinks and uh you look a bit shriveled i remember reading um a book by studs turkle and he had um spoken to somebody who had lost someone someone and had gone to see their body after the embalmer had done their work and they were really upset that the embalmer had gotten rid of all of the wrinkles that this person had known all their life i think it was their mother something like that um and they felt responsible for some of the wrinkles and the embalmer had just rubbed them away and this person now looked younger and objectively better but it wasn't the face they knew and i think that was that close looking at the face was one of the reasons why i wanted to speak to an embalmer and say why do you do what you do when you're taking someone's face and changing it that's huge because you're looking at it with such concentration um and that was that was the only interview I went into with with an axe to grind, really. Everybody else I went in going, just tell me, show me what you do. But with embalmers, I come from the school of Jessica Mitford's *The American Way of Death*, where I mm. I, I wonder if a lot of this stuff is just preying on the vulnerable. Um, uh, I've heard, although I, I I'm not I I don't know the actual statistic, but most people buy the funeral from the first place they walk into because. They don't want to think about it, um, and it's very easy to tell people you need this and this because they're frightened of dead bodies, and and now embalming is called a hygienic process, which is sort of what is that? It's euphemistic. They don't know. Um, so I asked, I, I spoke to several embalmers, and I, I came away understanding why they do what they do, but still thinking. I think there's great power in seeing a body look like a dead body. And also, if you've known someone to go through a, a sickness and shrink and shrivel as they went, to come in and see them in the chapel of rest, uh, you know, with color on their face that they didn't have a month ago. And, uh, you know, looking 20 years younger or whatever it is. I'm not sure I like that, even but doesn't though I that
0: speak loudly to this, uh, the strange culture of delusion that we, we live in. I mean, one of the things that I always find kind of funny, well, well, Josie, you know, who obviously I normally do the show with, whenever I would see it on TV shows, I would be like, why have the makeup people done that to her face? That's not what Josie <laughs> looks like, you know, and, and uh, it's uh, because there's a way, like the way of TV presentation. And yeah. In particular, you know, female friends of mine, when I see them on television, I think, oh my, they, they've been made to look like this version <laughs> that is that is not them. And and people all the time are, are, are straining to create an an illusion that is not really a representation of of themselves. And, and people are worried. People are worried at showing the honesty, the naturalness, the you know what what their their, their face really is. The way we present ourselves in so many different forms. Mm-hmm. Um. So it feels to me that this is an extension of that, you know, as you were said, you know, the whole so much of of what we have with death hidden away from us is this act of denial.
2: It's an act and of that, denial. That
0: seems to fit into that to that to me.
2: It does. It is. And um yeah, it is an act of denial. And and I don't think it's helping because in denying it you're not you're not really you're obviously not confronting it, but you're allowing space. For your imagination to run wild and i don't think that's helpful when it comes to dead bodies especially if it's you know if you're thinking about your your mother like i remember when my mum's mom died weeks later she'd just say out of nowhere you know i had a nightmare last night about what her body looks like in the coffin right now and and I spoke to grave diggers for my book. And, and they said that when they dig a grave, they always linger in the surroundings during the funeral because a grave isn't finished until you've filled it. So they can't leave. They just sit in their van or kind of mill around. And they said that mourners, if, if mourners spot the grave diggers, they will always come over and ask questions. Mm. My mum was buried five years ago. What does she look like now? Uh, and lots of questions about worms and the gravedigger told me that um, most questions that mourners ask are about worms and he said that worms in his experience don't go down that far six feet is too far for them to bother so it's not so much worms that is the thing Um, so people want to know and poppy the woman who invited me into her mortuary to dress the, the dead man she told me that um, she had a customer come in, a man who's, whose brother had drowned, and every funeral home he had approached had said that the body wasn't fit to view, so they weren't going to let him see it. And he wanted to see his brother, and he came to Poppy and he said, will you let me see my brother? And Poppy knew it was a test. She was like, "It was." he was asking, are you on my side or are you not on my side? And um she said of course i will let you see your brother because he had drowned and had been in the in the river for long enough that it it wasn't a pleasant sight but people people bloat and look different even when they've been in the water for 24 hours and if you've been there there longer than that it uh it accelerates decomposition so i can i can understand why other funeral homes were saying no but as poppy said it comes from a very a good place but it becomes very patriarchal and um about what they believe people can handle and in her experience people uh it's some for some people it's a primal need they need to see the body no matter what state it's in and i found that was true when i spoke to lots of different people about their jobs there was um uh, a retired embalmer and he told me that there was a when he was a young funeral director in america he would have been 22 himself there was he was dealing with lots of soldiers coming back from vietnam and there was one soldier who came back uh, in a bolted down metal case and he had died in a bomb and what was in the case was just some bones and charcoal and his dog tags so there was nobody to speak of. It was just bits. And he said the father wanted to see. And he obviously, uh, Ron, the guy I interviewed, obviously was like, well, it's not going to be, it's not going to look like your son, but I will open it if you if you want. And so he had to um, really work hard to get the lid off this metal case because they bolt it down. And he opened it. And the guy saw his son, just these bones and bits of charcoal, and was, you know, he wasn't horrified or regretting what he saw. He said, okay, that's my son. But he needed to see. He wouldn't leave the premises until he had seen. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And um, I think for a lot of people, they don't know what you can and can't do. The thing I found in speaking to these death people is that you can if it's your family whatever you want to do you can you can do it you could like all of the experiences I had in this book are open to you you can't go and watch their autopsy that will not happen but you can be there with the grave diggers or you can go downstairs in the crematorium and be there as they push the the coffin into the oven you can be there and dress your person you don't have to leave it to strangers. And um, I find it, you know, I, I now keep telling people when, when I have friends whose parents are dying and they say, I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't want to see her her dead. I want to remember her as she she was. I think you are missing something that could be transformative just because you're frightened. And just because the world is telling you you shouldn't see these things, um, I had a friend, uh, a friend killed herself about four years ago, and I got a message from her mum the other day. And this this friend was uh, a school friend, so I I spent as much time in her house as I spent in my own. And Mostly we watched The Simpsons and played Sega. Um, so she was a good friend, but I hadn't seen her in many, many years because she's still in Australia, but I'm close to her mum just by virtue of having hung around her for a long time. And her mum messaged me and she was saying, oh, I see your book's coming out, congratulations. Um, and she'd read a bit of an excerpt about me dressing a dead man. And she said, when Gemma died, um, all and 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 she said, she wanted to go and see the body all of her friends said don't do that they were horrified that she would they said don't do that you'll be you'll be sad and they tried to talk her out of it and the mum was adamant that she wanted to go and she went in and she said she's so glad she did she spent time with Gemma talking to her she said I was able to say the things you can't say to someone when they're alive and And now she's going around, like I said, Australia is flooding at the moment, and lots of people are dying. And she's got friends who've died in the floods. And she's telling their family, you have to go and see the body. It's for you. You have to go and do it. So once I I see it as your job, once you've done it yourself, you have to tell other people you can and you should because it's important. But the idea that we are living in a world where people will talk a grieving mother out of going to see her dead daughter it makes me so sad what how much have we fucked up that that's where we're at you know
0: what have you got a greater understanding of why what it is in in these cultures in these kind of i suppose you know english language predominantly christian cultures that has created that to be, this, this thing that that must be hidden I mean you mentioned you know you're talking about sex education of course as we know as well the the, the level of repression in uh cultures over that this kind of <clears throat> it does feel like you know original sin the burden of original <laughs> sin the burden of biting the fruit from the tree of knowledge the shame of all of those things so the shame of both sex and death seems to still be so strong in a culture that I think would like to imagine that it was not burdened with uh, the, the the weight of kind of damning myth. Nevertheless, to me, it seems to still run all the way through
2: it. Yeah, I think it's... I, I am an atheist and have been since I was a kid, even though I went all through Catholic school. But there's something to be said about the um, ritual around religion. And um, at least, you know, you kind of, and the Victorians knew what to do when somebody died. There was a mourning period, there was special clothes. I think it's, nobody knows what they're supposed to do right now. And even if you ask a grieving person how they are, they won't really tell you because they don't want to, they don't want to upset you, you know, and and be seen as a a drag. all of the the funeral directors I spoke to all commented on the fact that the decline in religion has resulted in the funeral director becoming a kind of, uh, becoming a bigger part of a death because previously they were seen as a sort of facilitator of the, you know, they they'd take the body, they bury it, they, but they weren't, they didn't have anything to do emotionally with you. Whereas now a lot of funeral directors have kind of become they fill a kind of bereavement counselling role. You know, it's like everybody's jobs has kind of become other things as well. And um, I so I don't know why we're so bad at it, but I do think it has a lot to do with the fact that there is no there is no set path for how you're supposed to feel, and that you know all of this. People tell you to be strong, and um, when you're grieving there should be a period where you're allowed to go insane and you're allowed to wear your your black clothes. And it, I just think there's this, it, I find it particularly in England, like having grown up in Australia, at least when I was around, I grew up in, uh, around a lot of Italians in Australia. And at least there was more kind of wailing <laughs> at funerals. There was more emotion. There was more um, there was there was more life in it english funerals just seem like like a something in an office and i find them so stilted and empty and um you know people don't know what to do so they just get on with what they were doing and i think i think you can see that a lot in our response to what's happening with with covid because there's been it's still going there's no identifiable end because it is still going but this idea that we just get on with it does not look at what we've just been through as as millions of people there is no point where we're able to grieve and people are grieving on their own but there has to be something on a mass scale for what we have been through and i th- i just i think the lack of that is an extension of why, of our shitty funerals and our shitty approach to death, it's just sad. Yeah, it does. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to
0: say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. It reminded me, I interviewed a, a woman a while ago who, I think, as far as I remember, it's the first body farm that there's going to be in Canada, uh, mm-hmm. just outside Toronto. And again, her approach to to death, she, she she's persuaded her mum and dad that they will donate their bodies for the wow. body farm. And she said, you know, it was kind of, and, and I thought about it a lot, and I was then going, yeah, I'll be really sad, but she was able to look at the bodies and and said, but I think that once they've died after a short period of me being obviously sad that they are gone, the body itself will just be, I'll be like, Oh, I'm really pleased that they've given this body. That's no longer them. And it's going to be great. (laughs) that And and it was, you know, she said probably after about 20 minutes, you know, but this, this bit, so she's not the grieving will still be there, Mm -hmm. but the detachment from the grief being over the body, I found very interesting.
2: Yeah. I don't think I could do that. I think it would I would that is very scientific that is a very scientific way of looking mm. at it I think uh I I think yeah there's a at the Mayo even though there are hundreds of bodies that come in they now have a thing where if a body comes in of somebody that someone in the building knows whether it's a student or a staff member they will swap it with another university so that no one has to come in contact with the body of somebody that they know and I think that that is the right way to do it because I don't, if I was a student and I was trying to learn anatomy, I wouldn't want to have the fact that this was somebody I knew as, as in front of me, that would be a block in front of whatever I was trying to learn. That would be too much of a mental hurdle. So I think that's wise, but people who run body farms are very, very adamant and ambitious about what they're going to do, and I'm not—I don't know how many people sign up to be at body farms. Do you?
0: I don't. But she—she she looked like someone who was very persuasive. <laughs> I really liked her because I've never—she uh, had a fantastic kind of a deep fascination combined with the kind of uh, the matter-of-factness about the body itself. Yeah. So you know when you meet, uh, it's like an incredible balance to me. In again, in this this kind of the the world where we 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 run away from it so much. But it was, um, yeah. I think the figures are higher than I think. There's quite a few people that once she does her lectures and says, "Would you like to sign up?" Mm. People do think, "Wow, how great to be useful!" Because after all, all we want to be is useful. We're always hoping that we're of use to someone. And I think many people are drawn to that idea of going, "Wow, someone will find out." uh i i might be useful and there will be you know someone a corpse of someone is found and because of what happened to mine and the way it was studied people will be able to understand how that person died so the usefulness after death
2: yeah well that was what jeremy bentham put in his will he was one of the first people who donated his body to science and he said i'm doing this basically because i had little opportunity to be useful in life and he was publicly dissected by his friends um He is one of the... I I have long loved the story of Jeremy Bentham. Have you gone to see him at UCL? ever? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know
0: about the head. I didn't know (sighs) that you had... You know, this to me was... Because I always knew that the head had been swapped. Mm -hmm. Um, Lenin's head is... Was Lenin's
1: head swapped as well? No,
2: Lenin's head is still Lenin's head. Um, It's
0: in a right old state, isn't it? They're having
2: a real... No, embalmers uh, regularly top up whatever is in his body. And... Embalmers I spoke to have gone to visit Lenin because it's like, uh, how have they done this? This is an amazing piece of work. So it is actually he's not. a Oh, wax maybe head. that's what
0: I read. Maybe I read the myth that uh, his uh, the apocryphal tale that the head was not actually Lenin's head. But now, I'm, now <laughs> no, he's apparently to it Embalmer, is. Embalmer uh, people yeah. on the inside, yeah,
2: yeah. He has constant upkeep to to keep him; otherwise, he would just fall to pieces like everybody else. But yeah, the the head. Um, I saw it years ago when I was writing something for an article, uh, because every, every few years, they take the head out of its cupboard to check if it's okay. And so I was there on the day and they had two people with blue latex gloves were checking him over and he stunk. He stunk like beef jerky. And it, it was, <laughs> it was, um, he, that was one of the strongest death smells I've experienced. And that was, a philosopher who's been been dead for however many years What is it 200 years or mm-hmm. something um and i i was even though i had read so much about him i still couldn't believe that this was this was him i was in the room with him and um i was told that the the glass eyeballs that are now in his head he used to carry them around in his pocket and get them out to show people at parties the more i read about him the more i think he, he must have been an oddball, but fun. I would have liked to meet him, I think.
0: See, I'm very uh, angry about, you know, the whole kind of nature of pubs need to keep their names. The Jeremy Bentham pub mm-hmm. is now called something like Julio's Cocktail Bar. What the fuck? Yeah, you know the Jeremy Bentham <laughs> yeah, pub? Yeah, I've been there. From, from the hospital, yeah? Yeah. It's, it's now got, it's now just a cocktail. It's got some stupid cocktail bar name.
2: That's horrible. Sorry, I, I didn't know
0: you didn't know. I, I wouldn't have broken it to you in that way if I'd known. <laughs> um but I just it's like because he's a character that you you realize the more you talk to people we have to find every single way of somehow placing in pop culture on the high street all of these names that are getting forgotten these kind of hmm. you know in in the increasing and I can just look it up on google whenever I need it feels like there isn't the same roller deck kind of nonsense you know knowledge that uh that I think I was brought up with all those ridiculous you know these books a thousand events a thousand lives tell me why how and why all of that and, and I did think because and then I thought even more. I I saw it about a week ago before I'd read your book, and I was like I'm a bit cross about that. And then when I was reading, especially as you were saying the glass eyeball story, mm. um, I was like, but this is this is better than calling it some fictional human being who's never existed. You know, their name, and both a number of. Cocktails. He
2: sounds like someone you'd uh, want to have in the pub.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like you could do a cocktail where you're able to fashion some kind of edible eyeballs and all manner of things. <laughs> there's a whole load of stuff to, to do with that. Um, I would the the final thing I would I mean, there's loads to talk because it is yeah. You know, I, I I particularly into Nick Reynolds' chapter. I've, I found the death because I've always been fascinated in death masks, but also the fact you you know you deal that there, there are people who. Are dealing with major tragedies with incredibly you know with 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 uh scenes of of you know really uh grotesque scenes um you're dealing with people who are dealing with the kind of again as we said the mundane someone dies and then they end up, and so many different narratives and so many different people's kind of experience and I wondered how much in writing the book your presumptions of what people would be like who spent their life living through death and how much that has changed?
2: Well, we are all told that people who work in funeral homes are supposed to be very morbid, and uh, you know, basically like lurch from the Adams family. And my experience of them over the years, which has been, you know, spotty. I haven't. I this was the first time I'd gone to to speak to them on purpose. I've run into various death people over the years, but my experience of them was they were always incongruously cheerful and um as i met more and more for this book i proved myself right like they they are so funny um and so there's an empathy there that i feel is stronger in them than in a lot of other people and it's like they've confronted something horrible themselves and they they're they're reckoning with it in a way and so there is there is a lack of worry there or specific worry that I see in other people and I would I would rather sit in a bar with a funeral director than an actor. <laughs> they are <laughs> there, there's something there's something to them that I love and um, one of the the jokiest ones was a guy called uh, Mark Oliver and he we call him mo and he is one of the people he works at kenyan which is a disaster response company so if the a plane crashes kenyan will go and deal with it they'll and they'll take care of everything they will um you know take care of getting the victims families to the place where their people died and they will deal with your website they will and they will pick up all the pieces of people and identify them. So it, it's like you call them and they take care of everything while you, you go away and deal with whatever your company is, um, you know, cause it's exploding. So you have to do that. And so they see pieces of people that have come out of airplanes. They, they have dealt with the tsunamis. So they've pulled bloated people from wherever they have landed and had to identify people from teeth in a body bag and so they have truly seen the worst that you can see and and Mo was one of the funniest ones I dealt with but there's a thing where the, it feels like it's kind of a, a facade in in a way because as soon as you start talking in a way that I, I think they have that thing that nobody nobody really wants to know what they do for a living, and then you have to put in the time and the effort to convince them that you do. And then they will drop the jokey facade, and they will speak on it honestly and deeply. So there's always that. and um, And it was in researching that chapter about Mo that I learned about Spain's pact of forgetting, which I vaguely knew about. You know what Franco did and then the the aftermath of Franco. But I didn't know that there was this um, political agreement put in place that whatever had happened during Franco's rule would just be forgotten. So nobody would be tried like they were at the end of World War II. All of the streets named in their honor would stay, all of that. I had heard about that, but I hadn't thought about the fact that anyone who was put in a mass grave during that time would stay there because if you dug them up you were going against the pact of forgetting because you were literally digging up the past and you were not allowed to do that so i hadn't thought about that until um an old lady called ascension mendietta died and she was 90 something when she died and she had been campaigning her whole life to find her dad's bones he had died In a mass grave when she was about six or seven or something he had been shot put in a mass grave and she had never been told where he had gone and there are lots of old ladies in spain who have devoted their lives to trying to find their bodies the the bodies of their fathers and their family and um there's footage of them tying flowers to you know roadside crash barriers because they heard that something had happened there and maybe that's where the body is but they can't can't dig them up. And I thought that says so much about what about what dead bodies mean, what people mean, and why we, you know, countries spend millions of pounds trying to get the bodies back after a crash. We must find them, even if it's the tiniest piece of a person. There's there's proof and there is deep, deep emotion in finding a person. Um, and it was just talking to Mo, who who spends his life um, identifying people. From, they might be a piece of a person that's no bigger than an orange. And he returns that to the family. They have a funeral with a full-size coffin. And inside, it's just a sample pot of a person. Mm. But I I knew being around bodies was meaningful. But I don't think I fully fathomed how much until... Mo told me about his job, because why would his job exist if we didn't have some emotional connection to a body, however small a piece it may be.
0: Hayley Cam, thank you very much. All the Living and the Dead is uh, out now in uh, Harback. Who is the publisher? I can't remember now. It's
2: It's Bloomsbury. It's
0: Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury are the... uh, Braveen books. You've got an imprint there. It's an R.
2: It's Raven Books, which Raven is a crime Books. imprint. This is their first nonfiction.
0: So Ravens, it's uh, it is fascinating, and uh, and as I said, I th- I think they'll, you know, there's there's times where going into those minds of those people who, well, they're doing all of the work that we have hidden away from us and which i think as we've both been talking about something that does need to be more out in in the open because i don't i personally just don't think it helps i i, I think this it is part of a thing that makes a you know a, a very sad society and a society which feels its losses i think even more painfully by having its losses hidden away from them mm. um but it's a fantastic book and uh, so thank you very much Hayley and uh, thank you to everyone who's supporting us for our Patreon uh, you've probably heard the longer version of this episode and uh, um, Josie hopefully will be back soon uh, my book The Importance of Being Interested I think is out in paperback imminently and the new one Bibliomaniac is out in October thanks very much to our producer Trent Burton bye bye thank you
1: Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Haley's book is out now. Robin's book is out now. You can get signed copies from CosmicShambles.com slash bookshop. Support the show at Patreon.com slash bookshambles. Rate, review, like on Apple Podcasts, five stars. Check out CosmicShambles.com slash nine lessons for tickets to our upcoming nine lessons shows over Easter. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care and bye for now.
0: Josie Robin's book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.